Solitaire's Novelcast, Do the Job, Episode 9. I'd be back in two weeks. Solitaire's Novelcast is where I take the books written by me, Corey Strode, and turn them into audiobooks and eventually ebooks. Be a little patient on the ebooks. I'm just now getting the uh, podcast back up to speed. Do the Job is the third novel that I am turning into an audiobook. And what you need to know for this episode is that Lance Green former professional wrestler and current private investigator, has been investigating the apparent overdose of one of his former professional wrestling friends. He has found out that the overdose was actually a murder, and the tendrils lead into his own business dealings. As he had discovered a little too much about what was going on, he had been captured and is currently tied up in the back of his car as one of the other professional wrestlers he used to work with is driving him out of the Twin Cities for nefarious purposes. Chapter 7 It didn't take long till I was able to figure out where we were. Eddie had driven about an hour west of Minatrista, and it wasn't long before I started seeing signs announcing how many miles it was till I was back in Minneapolis. The back of the car was quiet. While I knew that Eddie liked classic rock, I turned the radio to the news station and listened for anything about myself, Eddie, or Hodge. We weren't a story on the news yet, so I figured things would still be quiet and calm back at Hodge's house. He wouldn't be surprised to see my car roll up into his driveway. I know what you're thinking. Why didn't I just take Eddie to the police and have them deal with this? I wish I had an answer for you. Remember when I said that I wanted to hurt Eddie for what he'd done? I felt the same way about Hodge, except I hadn't taken a pledge to protect him in the ring, on the road, and everywhere else. I also kept having the image of him going in front of the judge who had released Ivy back into the world, and knew that the odds were on his side unless I evened them up. As I drove back toward his house, I figured out how I would do it, knowing the whole while that life has a way of smashing your plans to dust. There was another reason I did it as well but I spent the entire drive hoping that I was wrong about that and that I'd leapt to the wrong conclusion. I drove quickly, but not too far over the speed limit. I'm sure that I could use my private investigator's license to get out of a few things, but I didn't want a cop pulling me over, seeing my jack and tire iron in the back seat, and asking to see what was in the trunk. Then I remembered the tiny baggie of heroin on the seat beside me and smiled that I was once again worried about one thing when the bigger problem was staring me right in the face. I opened the glove compartment and shoved the baggie and leather kit in and slammed the door. By the time I turned onto the side road that Hodge lived on, I was as nervous as I had been before a big match. I know it's all predetermined who will win and lose, but you're always worried about going in front of a crowd and hoping you don't screw up. Now I knew if I screwed up, I was dead. 
I pulled in the driveway and slowly eased down. According to the clock on my radio, it was around 3 in the morning, but I knew Hodge would still be awake. He was detail-oriented, and he would want to know that it was done. I drove up and parked as close to the door as I could without making it seem strange. If he did have cameras, which I was pretty sure of by how they were able to catch me so easily earlier, it would be hard for him to get a good look at me before I got to the front door. I turned off the car and slid the keys under the driver's seat in case I needed to make a quick getaway. I got out of the car, had the collar of my shirt turned up so it was hard to get a good look at my face. If I was smarter, I would have grabbed Eddie's jacket off him before I tied him up, but I figured if I moved fast enough, that wouldn't make a difference. I walked up to the front door and saw that the camera trained on the door was actually up by the security light on one of the telephone poles, far enough away that he wouldn't be able to get a good look at whoever was at the door. A second lucky break after quite a few unlucky ones. I tried the door and it was locked. I rang the doorbell, then turned away from the camera and acted as if I was trying to keep warm. It wasn't long before the door opened, and I whipped around, Eddie's gun in my hand. Hodge was there with a gun of his own aimed at me. He smiled and said, I thought you didn't carry a gun. I didn't say anything as we stood there, guns trained on each other. As I said before, one of the things I do to get people to talk is to sit day silent. People feel like they need to fill the void, and you can tell how personally strong a person is by how long they wait to fill the silence. Hodge let the silence hang in the air for longer than anyone I'd ever known before he said, So what was your plan, Lance? Obviously you had some sort of revenge in mind, where you just would have called the police and given them our mutual friend. have a question or two for you, I said. I figured the best way to get them answered was to bring along some encouragement. He smiled. Not a condescending smile, but one of a man who was amused by the entire situation. You're an odd man, Mr. Green, he said. I would have thought you'd shown up here guns blazing to get revenge for your friend. I know it's not normally your nature, but you have to admit these are extreme circumstances. I don't do the revenge thing, I said. That's for movies. I simply want to know why you invested in my agency. And you think that because you have a gun on me, he said, I'll spill all my little secrets? I'm afraid you'll have to have more leverage on me than that. I already know that this ends one of two ways. I go to jail, or you end up dead, as I planned earlier tonight. Now, to be honest, your death will be a lot messier for me to clean up, legally, that is. But that's why I keep people on my payroll. And I have a lot of people I do payroll for. He wasn't going to answer the question, but I was prepared for that. I waited a bit longer, wondering if he would fill the silence again, but he didn't. We stood there as if we were two gunslingers in the Old West, waiting for the clock's tower to strike noon. I dove at him, just as I planned. He dodged out of the way, throwing off his aim, and fired, missing me. I wish he would have missed me by a few more feet, but it was enough that I was able to charge and tackle him, driving him to the ground, knocking the gun out of his hand. We fell into the house, and he hit the hard-tiled floor hard. He was a lot more solid than I'd given him credit for, but being knocked to the ground knocked the wind out of him. Since he didn't know how to take a bump, his head hit the tiled floor hard, dazing him just a bit. I grabbed both of his hands and pinned him to the ground. He struggled, and I gave him a headbutt in the center of the forehead that made me see stars. It hurt him a lot worse as I saw his eyes roll back into his head. I pressed my advantage and released one hand long enough to punch him full in the face. His nose was bloodied, and he struggled a bit as I punched him again. It was enough, because his body went limp. 
I fell on top of him, exhausted. I waited a bit to catch my breath, and then got up and dragged him into the house. I shut the door, picked up the gun that had been knocked out of his hand in the struggle, and grabbed Hodge by the collar. I dragged him down the hall and into the large living room. When I got there, I have to admit I was impressed. I'd only been in the office of his house before, and he kept his private life private. His living room was huge. It had a large projection screen television against a far wall, and the other wall was taken up by a nearly wall-sized window looking out at the lake. I picked Hodge up and tossed him on the couch. Search of the house found the bedroom he had kept me in. There was a decent length of rope there from when he had tied me up. When I got back downstairs, I checked on Hodge, who was still laying on the couch. He was alive and nowhere close to waking up. I found the kitchen, which had a nice set of wooden, strong wooden chairs. I dragged two of them into the living room, sat him in one of them, working quickly so as to be ready for when he woke up. He was securely tied to the chair in a few minutes, and I stood back to check on my handiwork. When I was sure he wouldn't be able to easily slip his bonds, I went out to my car and brought in Eddie. Eddie was a bit harder to deal with, but since he was still awake and I had a gun, I figured it was safe to untie him and have him walk himself in. There was a look of anger on his face the whole time, but he was smart enough to know that I was in control of the situation. Having a gun pointed at you tends to do that. When we got to the living room, I motioned for him to get in the other chair. What's your plan, Lightning? Just tie us up here and wait for everything to blow over? Nope, I said. I'm going to wait for the police. You've already confessed to the murder. We both know you did it for Hodge. I figure that once you actually get into the holding cells, you turn on each other and everything will come out in the wash. Either that or you'll be the one who goes up for murder and Hodge will use his money to go free and pin it all on you. He sat there, silent after that. What could he say? I decided to leave him ungagged, seeing as how there wasn't anyone here he could call for help. At least that's how it seemed. I figured if there were any guards or hired goons, they would have shown up when I was beating the crap out of Hodge. I went up to Hodge's office where I'd once sat to hammer out the agreement where he would give me the money for my agency, and in return we'd pay him back by hiring his firm to take care of all the financial paperwork. We didn't have an official agreement, but he'd made me sign an agreement with him that he would keep as his personal collateral. I doubted that it would be out on his desk or anything, but I thought if I could find it before the police showed up, I might save myself some questioning. In the office, his desk was immaculate, which was a problem for me. I remembered that he'd pulled the paperwork out of his desk and put it back in when we were done, so it'd be stupid of me to think he kept it in there all those years. Still, it was worth a few minutes of searching. The office itself was still as nice as I remembered it, with a huge oak desk that wouldn't have been out of place in a senator's office and a leather chair that probably cost a few thousand dollars. When I was setting up my office, I remembered how I liked how his looked and tried to find one like it at the local office supply store. When I saw it cost more than three months' rent, I went with the much less expensive office chair that wouldn't have been out of place in the office of the manager of the local McDonald's. I'm nothing if not cheap and practical, which I learned working for Dan for over a decade. I went through the desk and found lots of office supplies, a nice stapler, and a lot of papers that had to do with his cover business as a magazine distributor. There were lists of accounts, invoices for magazines and the like, but nothing that looked out of the ordinary. As I went through each desk drawer, I kept thinking something incriminating would appear. I know you're thinking that's wishful thinking, but in my line of work, I've always been amazed at how blatant people are about their crimes and indiscretions. I've found hotel bills, 
second bank account ledgers and the like in desk drawers from people who probably thought that no one else would ever go through them. In the final drawer I looked through, I found a folder that had my name on it. Hodge was a fan, I thought. I opened the manila folder, and inside was a record of payments, debits, credits, and other accounting information. I scanned it and saw the names of most of our early clients. There were amounts followed by much larger accounts, multiple bank accounts I didn't recognize, and other things that didn't look right to me. I grabbed the folder and started to head downstairs, but then realized if this is what I thought it was, I wouldn't want the police to find it on me. It would muddy the waters. What if I was trying to pin a murder on these guys because there was something shading going on at my agency, and getting them out of their way would get me off free and clear? I slipped the folder under my shirt. Felt for a minute I was a kid trying to shoplift a porno magazine from Schinders as I headed down the stairs. I was headed toward the living room when I felt something hit me in the back of the head. Well, maybe I didn't feel it. Maybe I imagined that I felt it, because the world went dark for me. A short time later, I woke up on the couch in the living room where I'd tied Hodge and Eddie to the kitchen chairs. Things looked a lot different now. Hodge was gone. No trace he'd ever been there with the chair, and all the ropes used to tie him up were gone. Eddie was still there, though. I wouldn't be getting any answers from him, though. He was lying on the floor, still tied to the chair, blood pooled around his body. He'd been shot twice, once in the chest and once in the head. From the look of the carpet behind him, the headshot had been first. I didn't even have to look around to know that it had been with the gun I'd been carrying, and sure enough, it was lying on the floor right in front of me. Before I'd had a chance to address the situation, I heard police sirens. Oh, that's not good, I said to the cooling corpse. I looked around the room and saw nothing here that I could point to as proof that I hadn't killed Eddie. No signs of a struggle, no evidence that Hodge had even been there, and the bullets that had killed Eddie had come from my direction, if not the exact place I'd been placed. I picked up the gun and slipped it in my pocket. At the very least, I didn't want to leave a literal smoking gun at my feet. At first, the only thing I could think of was how I could explain I was in somebody else's house with a dead body in front of me still tied to a chair. The second thing I thought of is how it would look if they frisked me and I had a bunch of records that, as far as I could tell, showed I'd been involved in financial misdealings. Add all of that together, and the big window leading out to the lake looked amazingly appealing. The sirens were getting closer, so I went to the glass double doors and checked them. Unlocked. I thought how much of this I could have avoided if I'd just tried to sneak in through those doors when the entire evening started. Shaking that thought away, I opened them, slipped outside, and shut them behind me. Yeah, I was leaving fingerprints, but I also know that finding usable fingerprints was a rare occurrence. And they would find so many fingerprints on the door, they wouldn't be able to prove anything. It was a quick trip into the sparse woods I had already walked through earlier that evening. I tried to move as quickly and quietly as I could, hearing the sirens coming closer until they stopped. I heard the police cars, at least two of them, stop and turn off their engines. I dropped to the ground, hoping that the fact that it was still dark and they had no reason to look out in the surrounding woods would give me enough cover. When I looked over at the house to see if they were coming my way, I saw the one thing I hadn't thought of that would make me seem just as guilty as if I'd stood there and waited for them. My car sat there, exactly where I'd parked it. There were two police cars. One of them quickly swept the area with their spotlight, but the light was nowhere near me in the half-hearted sweep of the perimeter. As the officers got out, I saw one go up to my car, talking into his radio. I couldn't hear what was being said, 
but it was clear that they were running the license plates to see who'd parked a few feet from the front door at a strange angle. I cursed under my breath and waited. I watched as the other three officers entered the house, pushing open the front door that had been left ajar. They had their weapons out, so I assumed they had at least been told shots had been fired when they were called. A couple of minutes later, I saw two officers come out of the house, say something to the one who was looking over my car, and he immediately went back to his squad car. The officers went back in, guns drawn, and I could hear them shouting something, but I couldn't make out what it was. It was then I decided to get back on the move. I got up but stayed in a crouched position as I moved away from the house through the woods. I could see a glimmer of light in the east, so I knew I didn't have a lot of time to get away. I also knew that there was a gas station with a payphone about a mile away back toward the main highway, so I had to figure out when and where I could cut across the road and double back toward the highway. The further away I got, the more I quit worrying about hiding. By the time I couldn't see the house anymore, I was no longer crouching and was moving as fast as I could without running. I cut through the woods toward the road. When I got to it, checked to make sure that if there was any traffic at all. None. All clear. The sky was getting a bit lighter, so I figured it had to be about 5.30 in the morning. We were far enough out that rush hour was maybe one or two cars instead of a constant slow of traffic toward Minneapolis that would be filling the two-lane highway by 7 a.m. I made it to the gas station by the highway. was glad we were far enough out of the cities that they didn't open till 6. Checking my watch, I saw that I had a half hour before they opened. The gas station was a newer one, looked more like a convenience store than a real gas station where they would fix your car, change your oil, and generally talk about cars with you. Another case of getting rid of people who knew what they were doing so that you could hire people who'd worked for minimum wage. It also meant that instead of making money off of replacing a blown clutch or fixing brakes, they would make it up by selling milk at twice the price of the grocery store so that you only had to make one stop. Progress. The payphone was attached to the side of the building. While there were only a scattering of cars driving this early in the morning, I turned my back to the road and dialed. Billy picked up and didn't sound groggy at all, and had probably been up, got in his workout, and was working on his morning coffee already. Yeah, he said. It's me. I'm at the Senex out of town. Things went sideways and I'm going to need a car, I said. Got it, he said. I hung up and looked for a decent place in the shadows to wait for him. I found a dry patch of grass in the grove of trees and sat down. If you were looking for me, I was easy to find, but for quick glances and passers-by, I was invisible. No one on their way to work this early in the morning would be expecting to see a man in the woods. Billy was one of the phone calls I had made before coming out here. I knew that things may fall apart, and I had to let him know where I was, what I was doing, and what I was looking for. I doubt he stayed up all night waiting for my call, but I was sure he had that phone next to his bed with the ringer on loud in case I called while he was sleeping. Twenty minutes later, his navy blue K car showed up and pulled around back of the gas station. He hadn't parked before another car showed up and pulled in near him. The driver got out of that one and went over to Billy's car. They were so far away I couldn't hear what they were saying, but after a long, tense minute, the other driver left. He unlocked the back door and went in obviously the store opener. I made my way quickly to Billy's car and got in. He started the car and headed toward his place, radio off. You're on the news, you know, Billy said as I got in. Not surprising, I said. I filled him in on what I'd done and discovered. So it was Eddie. I wish I could say I don't believe it, he said. Eddie was a killer, but he did it for Hodge. 
They obviously kept me alive to pin it all on me. There's no other reason they didn't just shoot me in the back of the head while I was out, I said. Yep, you're wanted for questioning in the murder. They're saying that your business was a front for money laundering. That second part may actually be true, which explains a lot. I don't know a lot about finances, but after looking at this, I'm reasonably convinced that we were just a front, I said, pulling out the paperwork I'd stuffed into my shirt, putting it on the back seat. Let's get you to the cops, so you can tell your side, he said. Won't work, I said. If he was going to frame me, he's got to have everything in place to make me look dirty. It's my word against his paperwork, and I'm going to lose every time. Katie will back you up. Billy had been in the world of professional wrestling since he'd gotten out of high school. He was raised in the business, and even though he knew we lied to the fans, the press, and everybody outside the business, in his mind you trusted everyone in the business. You had to. You had to know that if you jumped off the top rope, the other guy would catch you. If you took a punch to the head, it would be worked. If you did the job, you knew the booker would keep you strong. I'd been out of the business long enough to know that this is not the way the rest of the world worked. Hell, it wasn't even how it worked in the business sometimes. That guy may catch you when you dove off the top rope onto him, but if he thought he could get a bigger payday or a better spot on the card, he would have no problem at all bad-mouthing you to the owner, the booker, the fans, the dirt sheet riders, and the guy who sold programs and popcorn. It was all a matter of degrees. If he screwed up a move and hurt you, it would reflect on him. If he put the mouth on you, most of the time it would reflect on you. I was smart enough to tell the bosses the best about the people I worked with, simply because I didn't want to worry about having to remember what I'd said to what worker. Over the years, I got the reputation as a good worker who didn't make trouble. Since I was big, they moved me up the card. In the world, there were more incentives to compete rather than cooperate. That's why a lot of the smaller regional wrestling federations were dying. They weren't ready for someone to come in and bring in a bunch of national stars, run a 20,000-seat arena, and then move on to the next town. They were used to everybody working their territory and sharing the pie. Billy couldn't understand why someone you trusted would not back you up. I'd been out of that world long enough to know that trust was not always your best option. Wives cheat on husbands. Husbands cheat on wives. Employees steal from employers. Employers look to rip off employees. And everyone, it seemed, only looked out for their own self-interest. They wanted what they could grab, and then a little more besides. As I drove him back to his place, he asked if I needed a place to stay until the heat died down. It's not going to die down. I'm going to have to finish this, I said. So I have a big favor to ask of you. Anything, he said. I'm going to need to borrow your car. Mine's been taken in by the police, and I'm sure that they have surrounded the farm. I have a good idea of where Hodge is holding up to wait until they arrest me. He nodded and said, Anything for you, champ but I'd feel better about it if I came with you. I shook my head and said, that's not a good idea. If things go south, you'll be arrested for aiding and abetting. As it is, you could say that I stole your car if I got caught, and you'll be in the clear. He kept looking forward as he drove, letting the seriousness of the situation sink in. Billy hadn't had trouble with the law. He always ran things clean and above board. A real-life baby face. When we got to his place, he got out, left the car running, and said, is there anything I can do? I thought for a minute, then slid over to the driver's seat. I shook his hand and said, If you don't hear from me by six tonight, call the police. Report the car stolen. Let them know about the cabin Katie has. It's in her name since she inherited it from her parents, and we never put my name on the deed. 
He nodded glumly and said, I'm sorry I got you into this. It had to come out, Billy, I said. If it wasn't now, it would be later. These sorts of things don't stay hidden forever. And there you go. Part 9 of Do the Job. We're getting toward the end. There will either be one or two episodes to wrap this story up. As you can tell, we're just got finished with the... I would say this is the end of Act 2. All hope is lost. So the next one or two episodes, depending on how long they end up being, will be the conclusion of Do the Job. After Do the Job will be the next in the After the Fall series, which is a zombie novel set five years after Civilization Has Fallen. The first novel in Novelcast was the first part of After the Fall. So uh, we're already getting into a sequel. Speaking of sequels, the people who don't have sequels are these guys, our sponsors. Yes, here at Solitaire Rose Networks, we have ads. That's right, we have ads. Just like every other podcast. Come on, it's okay. Our first advertiser is our longest-running advertiser, and that's DreamHost.com. DreamHost.com is the best bar none web host all over the interwebs. You could go to other web hosts. You could go to the ones that have big ads on TV and everything, and they're not going to give you the service, the dependability, and and the reliability of DreamHost. Head on over to DreamHost.com. Use the code CRAZY, K-R-A-Y-Z, and get $20 off your first year of web hosting. Another of our sponsors is Dollar Shave Club. Dollar Shave Club has great blades at low prices. And let's face it, you got to shave. Head over to shaved.by slash C19DC. Get you some blades. They're wonderful. I use them. I use all of our sponsors. Matter of fact, head on over to crazycomics.com. Over on the right-hand side of the page, you'll see all of our sponsors. Bombas, Grays, Flaviar, Dollar Shave Club, and DreamHost. If you would like to advertise on any of the podcasts in the Solitaire Rose Network, you can just email solitairerosenetwork at gmail.com, subject advertising. Solitaire Rose Radio Network, or Podcast Network, I haven't decided which one it is, has a number of other podcasts. First, on every Monday, every single Monday, is the Mothership Crazy Comics and Stories. This week, next week... I almost said this week, but next week is episode 350. That's right, Crazy Joe Ryder and I have been doing our comic book humor podcast for 350 episodes. And 350 is not really that special a number, so we don't do a big deal of it. Also, Novelcast comes out every other Friday. Every other other Friday is Bad Advice, where host Dan Moore asks Wolfie Be Bad and myself questions about love, career, finances, anything under the sun, and we give bad advice. There's also Solitaire Rose Radio, where I do interviews or talk about specific topics having to do with comic books. And there is another series that Joe and I will be doing monthly. Well, Joe's on some of them. called Solitaire Rose Series and Review, where we go over old comic book series, and we treat them as if we're doing DVD commentary, issue by issue, getting into the plot points, um, some of the -the behind-the-scenes stuff, and reviewing the series itself. We've done Master of Kung Fu. I've done uh, other series such as um, some EC stuff, the early Tales from the Crypt and Mad. 
Um, I also did the first trade paperback of Art Ops, which was a Vertigo series. Then I did that episode with Matt Brundage, who was the artist on the series. So we've got a lot of stuff coming up here on uh, the Solitaire Rose Radio Network. In two weeks, the next part of all... No, not all in. In two weeks, the next part of Do the Job. I want to thank you for your patience. I want to thank you for listening. And I'll be back in two weeks with part 10. <laughs>